1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the producer and host of today's podcast. And I'm pleased to have Rosina Lozano with me to discuss her book, An American Language, The History of Spanish in the United States, published by the University of California Press in 2018. Dr. Lozano is Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University, where her research and teaching focuses on Latino history, the American West, migration and immigration, and Comparative Race and Ethnicity. She has received fellowship support from several prestigious institutions, including the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, the New Mexico Office of the State Historian, the National Academy of Education, and the Spencer Foundation. Hello, Rosina, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hello, DJ. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm very excited. Uh, we've been contact, obviously, before this, and I've seen uh, different versions of the book and presentations, so Uh, For me, at least, this is really an anticipated conversation. I'm very excited to talk to you about your your book. Um, But to begin, I was wondering if we could just, uh, if you would mind sharing a little bit about your personal and professional background uh, with our audience.
0: Of course. So I come from a a large Mexican-American family. My grandparents immigrated from Monterrey, uh, Nuevo Leon, and Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, in the 1950s. And they settled in California Central Valley and worked as agricultural farm laborers. Um, And my parents were both first-generation college students and I grew up in and around college campuses, more specifically on UC Santa Cruz, where my parents were preceptors at Kresge College. I was actually born in Santa Cruz and on Stanford University, where my father's a longtime administrator of diversity affairs. And after the age of 10, I grew up in Sunnyvale, which is between Stanford and San Jose. Um, I, I attended Stanford University where I was pre-med, believe it or not, as an undergraduate, Um, and as a sophomore, I took introduction to race and ethnicity with George Fredrickson and Al Camarillo, and that has really set me on the path to study Mexican-American history, though I was still pre-med when I decided to major in history. So I even had a research project with the medical school that involved coding simultaneous translations between doctors and patients, so I've been interested in language for a long time. Once I did my honors thesis under Al Camarillo's mentorship on the creation of the Community Service Organization, or the CSO, in East Los Angeles, I was really hooked. Al encouraged me to teach high school before committing to a Ph.D. program, and I went to Harvard for a master's in teaching and curriculum right after undergrad. And I taught high school for three years after that and absolutely loved teaching. But I also very much missed research, and I knew that I wanted to both teach and conduct research. So that's, um, I just felt like there was too much missing in the textbooks, and I wanted to help fill those gaps. So I was really incredibly fortunate to attend and receive my PhD from the University of Southern California at a very exciting time with a large cohort of students studying Mexican-American history and the history of the American West. I also benefited immensely from the mentorship of George Sanchez and Bill Deverell while I was at USC. And they guided me through my graduate coursework and dissertation. Um, I still turn to them as I continue on my career as a historian. So they, they really are. Um, are really important to my my career um, and due in part to the Huntington USC Institute on California and the west I formed great friendships with graduate students and professors from all over Southern California at the Huntington library so working and researching there opened up so many opportunities for me um, after I graduated from USC in 2011 I had a postdoc as you mentioned with the National Academy of Education Spencer Foundation and I took that um year at the, um, the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. Um, and just five years ago, I began here as an assistant professor at Princeton. It's really hard to believe that I've lived so far away from California for so long now. Um, And while I've been here, I've benefited from just amazing colleagues and mentors, both at Princeton and across the country, more than I can mention here. But they've just been so generous with their time and have helped me to continue to grow as a historian and teacher. And they're definitely all over my book acknowledgments. Um,
1: So I'm really incredibly lucky. You know, I'm interested as you mentioned the the switch, you know, away from you know the. Well, it was you know, funny because my parents actually. Uh, what did your, your didn't parents and family do- think that I wanted that.
0: to be a doctor really, but they weren't going to discourage me from that. <laughs> so my mom's like, you never really loved seeing blood, so I didn't understand why you wanted to be a doctor. But that so so they never really pushed me in one way or another on that. And um and my mom's a, a teacher, she teaches third grade. My dad was an administrator, and I thought about. Whether I wanted to do administration or teach, and I decided that if I wanted to get a PhD, that I would um, that it could be benefit me to have that teaching background, and so that's why I chose to go that d- direction instead of getting a masters in higher ed and going more to an administrative route.
1: You mentioned that language. You've often you've long been interested in language, and of course, the title of the book has that at its at center, an American language. And I'm particularly interested by um, you know the the title itself. But I want I was wondering if you might. Sp- explain first the image that's on the cover, because I think it's just a, a, a really well-done cover. It looks great. Uh, what's that image that we see in, in the background, which our listeners will be able to, to click on and see during the, the podcast?
0: So the image on the background is a loyalty oath for the United States, and it's entirely in Spanish during the Civil War. Um, so it says Territorio de Nuevo Mexico. And if you look on the cover, you can see that it's Charles Leib and Thomas S, um I don't know if it's Strymer or you know that's right the, the other name but both of them are not Spanish they're named and you kind of just get a sense for how New Mexico operated in Spanish from the cover and it's very clearly the United States because it says e, pluribus unum and has the the eagle right there on the on the cover um, and so that was an image that I kind of talked to the the press about and then I was very lucky that they they liked the idea and they went with it and um, and then the cover designer um, I had actually wanted to have it be bilingual um, on the cover, so if you look, the the cover has in red um, the title of the book, and then in blue it has it in Spanish, and all throughout, including my name and script, has everything in Spanish. So it says La historia del español en los Estados Unidos too, um, and and that was something that that they came up with, but I had actually wanted, but it didn't ask for it, and so I was very very happy when they did that and chose to to go in that direction. So it it kind of all in, in the cover gives a sense for where the book is going.
1: No, exactly. That, that's exactly what it does. And, and I appreciate you. And thank you for explaining that. Because I had noticed, you know, the smaller text, you know, the, so the bilingual of the nature uh, of the cover came across to me through that. But uh, I even missed, you know, the subtlety of the blue cursive script uh, with the, again, title. Um, well, that's just right underneath, you know, the red bold and American language. So... Thank you for pointing that out. And as you mentioned, it really does, I think, the cover, if you look and analyze it succinctly, um, you know, conveys the book's central argument, which uh, I believe is, right, that the U.S. is and always has been a multilingual nation, right? And moreover, uh, the the particular subtitle here, The History of Spanish in the United States, uh, this is more of a political history. Is that right? Can you expand a little bit about you know how is this a history of spanish in the united states
0: yeah you're right it's it is more of a political history it's a politics of the spanish language in the united states so i looked at Translations and official use of Spanish, but I also looked at the ways that it was being incorporated at, into schools because that's the next generation of who's going to be speaking a, a language, right? So if, if the language is offered, then that gives you a sense of how it's going to live in society, and and just the politics of using a specific language on these official forms or on letters when you're writing to government officials. What does it mean to see those in Spanish rather than in English? Um, and a lot of times things are translated, you know, for. Um, word count limits or things like that. I'm sure it's not necessarily the the author's choice, but in in this book, I explicitly make sure that everything is in its original Spanish when it is in there, so that people can really see how much it, um, people were using Spanish in these in these positions that are often thought of as being
1: completely in English. Right, and to continue on just the the political history thread of this. So, this is as it became clear to me. Um, because initially, again, reading the title, one would think, oh, okay, um, there's various ways, I guess, to interpret, uh, you know, the history of Spanish in the United States. But to me, it's, it is very explicit with a subtitle that that's within the formation of the U.S. nation, right, as opposed to like a, a very broad history of Spanish in the Americas, which would be quite different, right? Um, so you could add a little bit or explain, expand a little bit more on that part, the, you know, the the you know, intersection at which that this book focuses on, within you know the role that Spanish plays in the formation of the United States itself.
0: Right, and so there's a lot of different ways that I argue this in the book, but for for one example, um, so as as more and more scholarship has been coming out on the 1840s, and I'm thinking of Brian Delay's book or others that kind of talk about just how many um, Native, well, I guess that. that just the native empires were in control of a lot of the West at the time. Um, what I began to see when I was reading the documents was that there was no pushback against using Spanish in these regions because the individuals who were settled there and who had the relationships with the native population, um, the indigenous populations that were in these regions were Spanish speakers. And so the United States actually needed these, um, these individuals in order to set up the government in these new st- territories and states. And so it's both in California and New Mexico, New Mexico divides into many others. And so it gets complicated pretty quickly. But that's the central tenet is that each of these um, spaces could not have begun to be a part of the United States without the use of Spanish.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so in, in that point, then the, the uh, sort of you know, starting point for the narrative then is 1848, right? With the, um, the conclusion of the uh, U.S.-Mexico War. And the book itself is organized into two parts. Uh, the first five chapters included in um, a, a section that focuses on Spanish as a language of politics, right? And this goes from the end of the uh, U.S.-Mexico War in 1848 to 1902. And then the second half um, the the remaining five chapters, uh, uh, let's see, is entitled or covers Spanish as a political language, right? From 1902 to 1945. So within the first section, um, as far as Spanish as a language of politics, in, in what ways can you expand on you know that that Spanish functioned as a language of politics? What do you mean by that?
0: Right, and so it depends on the location, but what I found was that Spanish was There were translated session laws, there were legislative members who spoke Spanish, so they required interpreters on, in the legislatures at the time, there were court cases that were conducted entirely in Spanish. There were ballots; um, the you know, secretaries of, of elections were writing in Spanish what the what the um, return, the voting returns were to to the territories and states. And so, there's a lot of different ways that Spanish functioned as a language of politics in this earlier period. And again, it changes when. Based on you know ge- geographically it changes uh, the time period so I don't want to kind of go into the that sort of detail but it, that gives you a sense for what I mean by a language of politics so there's it's used in official capacities in multiple different ways in these different
1: places great great and yeah let's do that let's focus on the the first half um, and uh, so within this language of, of politics you introduce a a, a a concept or a term called treaty citizens. Uh, can you explain what that term is and how this group might functions within what you were just explaining, uh, making sp- that is making Spanish a language of politics within these new territories.
0: So people who are from Texas may have noticed that I have not mentioned Texas yet in my description of my book, and and so treaty citizens is one of the reasons that I t- treaty citizens is what I came up with for the reason why I don't include Texas, um, and so Texas you know becomes a territory much like it leaves Mexico earlier. It also becomes a state of the United States prior to the U.S.-Mexican war. There were, of course, issues, you know, Mexico not necessarily um, recognizing it and all that. But at the same time, Texas was not the same as these other parts of of the um, Southwest that became part of the United States later. And they also had Uh, Anglo populations that were about 10 to one, right, when that transfer occurred. And so they never really saw the same sort of language, Spanish as a language of politics in Texas, as they saw in other parts. Whereas in New Mexico, there is, you know, 95% of the population um, is Spanish speaking. Um, Some obviously spoke English too, but it's a very small number. And what they had in common with California, you know, they can't necessarily be traveling on a train to go in between, or you know, talking about how they're using Spanish. But they had that in common with the other individuals who also became citizens by this by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo um, in in California as well. So the treaty citizens are from 1848 in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. In Article Nine, the the U.S. government in Mexico agree that all those those residents who are in this ceded territory, who were Mexican citizens, would become US citizens. And there's no proviso for race, there's no proviso for language in that. Um, so but all of those individuals, you know, at the stroke of a pen, they don't even know it at the time, right, become US citizens, and some of them didn't want it, right. But they all become it at the same time. So that's what unites the large kind of geographical
1: scope of the book is these treaty citizens. Gotcha, right. And so with the treaty citizens, you started to mention that there's uh, there's a uh, and luckily, you know, recent scholarship and or scholarship over the last, you know, couple of decades has expanded on, you know, just how, uh, you know, accessible, right, citizenship was, right, to these, um, you know, new members of, uh, you know, the, the U.S. nation state. Uh, so can we get into a bit more specifics as to whose they were, right, because there's, I guess, population figures, you know, vary, right, based, I think you state something around 50-something thousand, right, or so, are incorporated under this new category, but yet, right, obtaining those rights and benefits of citizenship as whether they're you know being claimed through the Treaty of Albuquerque was, uh, was oftentimes tenuous, right? It wasn't just universally granted. So you can expand on that a bit.
0: Yeah, so it does get pretty complicated in that who's who was considered a citizen under Mexico was not necessarily who the United States wanted to make citizens, right? And so um, you have the 1790 Naturalization Act, which doesn't really affect these individuals since they're not being naturalized, they're just being granted citizenship in a, in a different sort of way, but that, would, that said only white individuals could become citizens of the United States, be naturalized, right? And you have all these tenuous kind of long history of, of citizenship of Native individuals. And Perhaps unsurprisingly, um, those Native individuals, and specifically the Pueblo Indians, who did have citizenship under Mexico, but again, um, gets complicated in terms of what their rights were in terms of voting or other sorts of things, but they did have citizenship, did not get citizenship. And so those individuals are not considered treaty citizens in my book. And so it's really these Spanish-speaking individuals, these individuals who um, would become Mexican-Americans rather than indigenous individuals who I... Cover in the book.
1: Great, great, thank you. And within these treaty citizens, it seems that these are typically, at least some of the most obvious ones, would be those that um, held property, right? Already were within the existing class structures and, and political structures, had or the elite of the region. Is that was that appropriate
0: yeah I would I, I mean that's definitely who left the records behind that most of the records that I was looking at um, in terms of who actually becomes citizens um, there are individuals that do not have property and who are um, who are voting pretty early on so if I have these rolls from the 1860s that I found in at the Huntington Library these scrolls of voters and you know nine out of ten of those individuals were Spanish surnamed individuals who most likely could not write since they did not Write their name on the um, the actual list of voters, um, but some did. So you can see the the, the change in names. So, um, so especially in New Mexico, that was a larger group than just the elite that um, that practiced the rights of citizenship. But definitely, the ones that were leaving behind a record were those elite um, that you're talking about. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing, uh, for example, a, a couple differences that you point out. So within the book, there's there's you know the narrative arc. Uh, you know if you will covers how spanish moves from you know this early language of governance in the, the mid 19th century for in, particularly in the, the territories of california and, and New mexico uh, to one in fo- foreignness that foreignness is more of the second part of the book but in the first half of the book uh, you do point out or i guess and even throughout right that there are these differing trajectories even within california and New mexico and the other you know states that eventually form out of that broad New Mexico territory, which, you know, modern day, you New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, primarily, right? So, so what is part of the, one of the, the key, you know, distinguishers as to how, you know, this successful, you know, these treaty citizens were at, you know, claiming rights and accessing rights through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, and, you know, really making Spanish, uh, you know, at least a, an important aspect, right, of that transition from, um, you know Mexican governance to U.S. territorial governance.
0: So there's a, a huge difference in in the territory that that's ceded from Mexico pretty quickly, and that happened that California becomes a state, and rather than remaining as a territory, and part of the reason that it becomes a state is because of the gold rush and this huge influx of Anglo, but also you know international miners um, coming into the region, and so you see. The treaty citizens overrun by overtaken by this population of, of newcomers very quickly. And and you see it as early as the, the state constitutional convention, where you have the vast majority of individuals that are there have not lived there for very long. And there, but at, even at that, in that case, where you would expect that they may, might dominate, there was still eight individuals who could not speak the English language, who were at that convention and who were giving their opinions and and being a part of the government. And and, and some of those individuals eventually became senators, too. So there's a different from that starting point um, of 1848 and of becoming treaty citizens. There's a, a pretty quick division between the two regions um, that is part of the reason that I wanted to look at it comparatively to see how it how it shifted. Whereas in New Mexico, they. Um, I mean, there's many different debates and arguments over why um, New Mexico remained a territory for so long. But one of the things that I I argue is that by remaining a territory, it was able to keep Spanish in such a central place for much longer than it was than than what happened in California or other places. Um, And part of that reason is because the, the Congress was supporting those translations um, and supporting the use of Spanish in the territory. in a way that it didn't occur in other parts because the New Mexicans just dominated the the demographics of the territory so much more than say in Colorado, where it was really just the Southern counties where the Spanish speaking mostly dominated. And they still had a a significant amount of power. Um, Colorado didn't wanna lose these individuals. And so they were pushing for including translations. It's also, it's in their constitution. that they would have translations until 1900, right? So, so while they're not operating the the Colorado state government in Spanish at all, they still have these translations, and there's a, still this support, and there's a sense that there was power within the Spanish-speaking um, community to have these sorts of of um, this sort this sort of official
1: support for the language. Great, thank you for that. And that that, seems, that comes across clearly as a uh, key way in which, right, these treaty citizens uh, claimed, um, you know, language rights, uh, as, uh, as you explained, um, you know, early on in the book, was through advocating for translations, right, so making official documents bilingual, if you will. Or were there, uh, What other ways, or were there other ways in which um, they, they pushed for these language rights aside from this translation itself? In official documents translation
0: yeah translations of, of official documents use in the schools continue to, to teaching in the schools um and at the local levels it could be you know the courts the judges um just a, there's a lot of different ways that that the um the language was used even if the official translations weren't always in that in that language so um so there's a broad array of of ways that the the and that that more local story um I mean, I follow it even into the 20th century where individuals are writing to um, political party officials in Spanish, right? And are getting responses in Spanish as well. So there's, they, it's not just that they were advocating for it, but they were actually operating in Spanish right. in many of these
1: places. Yeah, and, and New Mexico is really the key, right? In particular, right, in that uh, the Spanish was just so dominant, well, even in the 20th century, uh, is that correct? I mean, just not only in mm-hmm. politics, but, you know, throughout daily life you know, it, itself, right?
0: Yes, throughout daily life, in the courts, and in, in just in every every facet of, of life it was it was dominant. Um, and in, in southern Colorado it was is similar and then there's pockets of, of Arizona, but Arizona never had the same sort of support for for the language as as the the rest of the, right, the right.
1: territories Yeah, you know, and now I'm thinking as it thinking of it actually you know I I've probably glossed too much over this concept of language rights which is really important uh, I believe and you add quite a bit to uh, you know the discussion of it you want to take a, a moment just to explain uh, what maybe the the this you know writings are the history kind of, of language rights is and, and how you your book in you know really adds uh, depth uh, to the concept and, and scholarship on language rights?
0: Right. So, in many ways, language rights is, is a, a fairly new concept and, and a fairly new political, um, mo- like a, a fairly new point of political mobilization, right? So, it's only in 1996 that UNESCO issued the Universal Declaration of Linguistic Rights. And that really offered protections for minor- minority language speakers. It, it might be the right to be recognized as a member of that a, a particular language community. It would be the right to teach and to preserve the language, um, the right to have access to the language in media and official spaces, right? And the right to use one's language in both in public and private. And these individuals, these, these um, tw- treaty citizens, as I call them, were not, of course, looking to other societies and talking about language rights with them and trying to figure out how to advocate for them. Um, these were, um, it was absolutely necessary that that Spanish was used in order for them to, to actually become citizens. Right. So in, in many ways, the book is looking at the ways that, um, this group of in- individuals who didn't speak Spanish were, um, were offered, um, the opportunity to participate in citizenship. Right. Um, and, and so, in some ways, language rights is anachronistic because people don't think of it in this earlier period. And in other ways, um, it was very organic for them, right? It was
1: it made absolute sense, and it was what gotcha. they needed in order to participate. Thank you for that. So, uh, as we've covered, you know, the first part of the book covers the, the treaty citizens. You know, make their claims to language rights. You know, in early form, again, something they don't articulate, but something we we conceptualize and theorize about now um, during this you know first fifty or so year period. 54 years, I believe it is, up until about 1902. So 1902 becomes the dividing line for your uh, narrative. Before we switch into the, the second half of the book, where Spanish is um, becomes more of a, of a political language. So can you explain the division um, as far as you know the the year itself, and then what what transpires as they move away from Spanish being used as this you know official language, where you know the transition of governments is occurring and very much necessary. to then what happens after that?
0: Right. So 1902 is an important year for a couple of reasons, and one is because it's the year that these five senators go into New Mexico and begin to really ask a bunch of questions about what language is being used in society in New Mexico. And it's not like the Senate or you know the, the Congress or um, even the Treasurer's office didn't know that they were operating in Spanish. They did. There's I, I found many letters where they they acknowledge that, but it was this uh, this attempt to kind of let the rest of the nation know that that's what was occurring, and um, and so you know w- when they leave they the the articles from New Mexico are talk about. Senator um, Albert Beveridge in particular as being an enemy, Miguel, like an enemy of New Mexico because of what he had kind of, that he insinuated that they couldn't be both U.S. citizens and Spanish speakers. And that was a core part of their identity, right? And so that was the first year that the U.S. really kind of looks to the Southwest and in particular to New Mexico and says, they're different and and we don't really like that. Um, at the same time, um, it doesn't, that isn't what stops them from having statehood, that's a longer story. But um, but what it does is it, it allows for all of these different articles to go out where people are like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe the courts are in Spanish. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe you could meet somebody who's 19, born in the U.S. and doesn't know English, right? And so there was this real recognition that that was occurring. Um, and at the same time, the flip side and what links it to the second part of the book, where, where it's no longer a language of politics, but becomes a po- political language, is the idea that the um, the irrigation that occurs in 1902. So the Newlands Reclamation Act is kind of the f- one of many of these acts, but it's, it occurs in 1902 is probably the most famous of them. Right. And that is what was really going to allow for the, the well, or not just allow for, but opens up this great need for, farm workers, right, and farm laborers that brings in this huge influx of new Spanish speakers into that same region where, where treaty citizens had um, been, less so in New Mexico, but, you know, they go into Arizona, they go into California, they go in all over, and it, it's a replenishment of the language, but it's also a shifting of the language to a group who is not um, U.S. citizens, but who are immigrants and who are from Mexico. But as um, there's also, I mean, another that happens right around the same time is, of course, in 1898, when the United States becomes kind of more imperial and colonial, like takes over um, the rest of Spain's lands, right? You you get Cuba, you get um, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, all these different regions, and you have um, Spanish coming through Puerto Ricans in particular as well. And so that's another kind of addition of the Spanish language. Um, But there's kind of a difference in the way that it's discussed um, in the West versus in, in Puerto Rico.
1: Right. So in many ways, so much of this is about changing demographics and migration trends and, and flows, if you will. Is, is, is that right? In regards to the, the perception of who's speaking Spanish, um, both you know, within the, the region as that's changing, but also you know, for the nation itself as it's you know, expanding right? I mean, this is the, the phase of um, the, the U.S. colonial phase, if we will, right? When they expand into the, the Caribbean and uh, not only that, but into this, this uh, Pacific. Oh, uh, right. Um, there's a, so with that, uh, so this is again where then Spanish is becoming more perceived as uh, that language of foreignness that you explained earlier.
0: Yes, foreignness can be radical, right? You have individuals that are unionizing, you know, you have the Bisbee deportation in Arizona, you have individuals in California kind of being vilified for speaking Spanish, right? So there's a, a different sort of um, discussion that's occurring there. And then you still have individuals in, in New Mexico who continue to have leadership positions who continue to be participating in political parties. And But at the same time, it's starting to wind down. So there's this, there's kind of, um, Spanish has is multifaceted at this point in terms of what it means in in the country and what it means to the expansion, right? So you have this kind of desire to Americanize these individuals and, and teach them English at the same time that you have all of these Pan-American aspirations as the nation does look towards a more colonial, um, first by taking land, later by going into to different uh, parts of Latin America for economic gain, right, or political gain. Um, and so Spanish becomes a highly valuable in those sorts of situations. So the, the second part of the, the book is kind of a little more messy because um, there's so much that that Spanish can mean at that point to the nation as the nation is growing itself. um, Spanish is growing and changing in the ways that it's being perceived by the federal government, by the state government and by Spanish speakers themselves.
1: Right. Yeah. And um, as the, you begin, you know, with that, you know, so much of this is about, you know, the implications of, you know, between language and identity, right. Both individually, uh, you know, personally too, uh, but also to the nation itself. So this becomes a, a critical period where this is really in flux at all those different levels, right? Um, before we go to, to, to 1945 and, and, or World War II and, and Pan-Americanism, which is where I'd like to go next, but I, I just got this thought and I was thinking, so during this this period of transition, um, you know, particularly into the 20th century, the, first, the initial decades, how is this affecting, uh, you know, again, the changing politics and perceptions of Spanish itself, how, does, how are treaty citizens responding to these changes that are that are happening all around them? Both the way in which they are perceived, their language is perceived, the demographic transition that's going on, which is very rapid, right? Uh, we, we typically tend to think of migration as something international, but this is a key moment, right? When the West is being heavily populated by uh, domestic migration from the Northeast, from the Midwest, etc. Right?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's there's different reactions as you might expect. Um, so there's those who really support Americanization and say, you know, if we are going to be part of this country, we should learn English and Spanish should be more of a private language, no longer the language of government or language of politics. You have individuals who are definitely having that side of the argument. A young Dennis Chavez kind of goes on that side. And at the same time, in these, you know, 19 teens, 1920s in New Mexico, you also have individuals who are very excited about the possibilities of Spanish and what they can bring to the nation by aiding them with Teaching others Spanish, you know, there's there or and um, having posts in Puerto Rico or the Philippines because they already know Spanish and they know the culture or going into Latin America, right? So there's that sort of of a, a, a kind of push for Spanish as being this really important political um, asset to the to the to these regions and to these Spanish speakers who both know the American side so well but
1: also do know the Spanish. Great, thank you. So. Towards the, you know, the latter chapters of the book, you know, how does, you know, Spanish, again, as a political leader, start to, again, evolve uh, in in the trajectory of your narrative that is particularly around World War Two, you've mentioned Pan Americanism uh, as one thing. um, So we can go on go with that a little bit too. But what other ways in which, you know, Spanish is both being seen as a language of opportunity, main, mainly perhaps on the international scale. Uh, but then, you know, domestically, there's, you know, we've just gone through a, a few decades, but it's like, you know, particularly the 20s, the 30s, in which uh, nationalist sentiment, right, really uh, consolidates around English, you know, and, right, that, that English is, that the United States is an English-only or an English-speaking nation. So there's these two kind of competing forces, right? Right.
0: So you you have dozens of states that make English be the only language that is allowed to be taught in the primary grades, and then you'll have different schools that will encourage Spanish in the eighth grade and up. Right, so the the message is very clear that you have to learn English first to be an American citizen, and then after that, it is very useful to have these other um, this, these other languages, and uh, Spanish being the the major one, right? Um, so Spanish becomes the the most spoke, the most learned. Modern language um, it surpasses France uh, French sorry not France uh, surpasses French in the 1940s like right during the, the World War II and a lot of that has to do with the larger movement towards Pan Americanism a lot of interest in that but also the war itself and and these kind of I mean you've probably seen you know Walt Disney doing these movies, good, um, the good neighbor policy and these, good, the, these um, desires to have these stronger connections with Latin America. And so there was a lot of, of discussion on how do we make the United States look good for these Latin American nations. And at the same time, um, there is discrimination and segregation and all these other things that are happening to Spanish speakers in the United States, right? So um, the Office of Inter-American Affairs during World War II, in particular, is one of the ways that the federal government really stands up for the first time for Spanish. Um, and so it's trying, it's mostly through um, school programs that are, are meant to kind of bridge the divide between Anglo and, and Spanish speakers. Um, and so it's usually with immigrant communities, but not necessarily always. And there's, there's a real desire for Spanish to be learned and also for English to be taught. So
1: it's kind of both at the same time. All right, All right. Thank you. So after the, the the you know main set of chapters really kind of end with the right right around World War Two, the epilogue takes us a bit beyond that, we kind of provide a peek you know into or glimpse into the implications for uh, you know Spanish you know in you know the latter half of the twentieth century. try um, to you know just add a little bit of what you cover there in regards to you know, how this carries out beyond World War II?
0: Right, so um, part of the reason I don't go into that period is that that's a period that's been so well studied by Chicano scholars or other scholars. Um, and so, you know, Guadalupe San Miguel has covered very well the Bilingual Education Act, you know, all these sorts of things that come because of Chicanos advocating for the language, advocating for learning more about, you know, the history of Spanish speakers in the United States. Um, that that sort of history is, is better known. Um, that you have, you know, CSO, Steve Pitti talks about the um, how the CSO would have the citizenship courses in Spanish for individuals who are older, right? And, and the 1952 Walter McCarran Act allows for those individuals who lived in the United States for a long period of time to take naturalization exams in Spanish. Um, so you have a very different sort of story in the post-World War II period. You have the rise of Spanish in a, um, again, right? So through larger migrations that come in that, that period post-1965, but then again in the 1980s and 1990s, you have a, a very different sort of population that comes into that into play. Um, and for the most part, that earlier history, by that point of treaty citizens of Spanish as a language of politics is, is forgotten um, at by the, the that period right so it's not really in play in the same way but at the same time there are very significant gains um, the probably the most significant was in 1975 when the Voting Rights Act um, extended the language rights to voters who spoke who speak Spanish so it you know 1965 the Voting Rights Act is is what's well known and it was um, and it's a in its extension, in, in ten years later, is what allowed for ballots in certain counties to, um, under certain conditions, to be in other languages. And specifically, those were in, spe- in certain Asian languages. Um, they don't designate which ones, but most likely, you know, Chinese, um, and in Spanish. So, and, and then Chinese is most likely, depending on wh- what part of the country is either Mandarin or Cantonese, right? So, um, so there's this. This national recognition of languages and language rights that comes in the 70s, along with many other, you know, civil rights um, sorts of gains that that come into play. Um, but for the most part, I feel that that has been well covered by other scholars. And so um, I, I was really interested in that earlier history and um, and finding where that where language politics was prior
1: to that 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 story. Well, I think, and thank you for, for adding and explaining that. And, um, you know, in regards to your book again, I mean, covering that hundred year period, if you will, you know, after the Treaty of Guadalupe, the end of the U.S.-Mexico War, uh, is is such a needed uh, history and story. I just, it got me so much thinking about my, uh, you know, even my own lifetime in California and how, you know, Spanish, the language itself, right, has, has, been so politicized throughout my life. My parents, you know, were uh, bilingual educators, and I'm thinking about the context that they dealt with you know, uh, bilingual education, particularly in California, was perceived in the 70s, the 80s, eventually getting banned in the 90s. Uh, you know, me growing up, you know, with with my parents as educators, as bilingual educators, uh, uh, you know, there was just this feeling that. You know, you didn't want to, my parents never explained this to me, but it became clear to me that they didn't want their children being labeled, you know, as English language learners or even bilingual, right? And now we're just at a completely different moment, right, (laughs) where, uh, you know, bilingual education now is, um, oh, guy, I always forget the new term that they use for it. immersion you know spanish immersion or language immersion classes right and it's viewed as of course a benefit to children and and it just it sort of gives me whiplash to think about how fast this has all changed particularly since the late 90s which is you know going from banning spanish to just almost embla- embracing it at least at an institutional level right uh, both their education and political systems um,
0: yeah you have california overturning their ban on bilingual education, right? Yeah, so it's a huge shift in our lifetime, like you said. Um, and I think that both of those sides of the coin in terms of Spanish as kind of being vilified, and I hear stories from so many individuals who, whose father didn't speak Spanish, but their grandmother did, and that they now do because they've gone out of their way to do it. So you can kind of see within family structures the ways that language politics has affected individuals um, at the like at the most... Intimate levels, right? And and I uh, I really love hearing those stories. So,
1: so true. You can really you know track it over generations, right? And kind of peg maybe even now with with language fluency. I mean, my my children again growing up in an era to where Spanish is so much more embraced. And that's not to right gloss over the challenges still and you know the nativist sentiment that still exists not only in in the state of California where you and I are speaking, but but nationally um, as well. But it's. Uh, it does seem clear to me that they are, you know, they are approaching Spanish and having a hunger for, you know, different languages, not just Spanish. You know, growing up in a very multicultural uh, society, that just it wasn't something that I experienced, or of course, my parents, right? Um,
0: right. No, I mean, for individuals that are in urban spaces, they can just look at billboards right and see it in see them in different languages they can hear it on the streets they um it's a part of the life right style for for many individuals daily and so um so thinking back to the 19th century and hearing these different languages would not be something that we can't picture right because we can imagine it because it's what is is reality in many places today
1: i'm also kind of wonder if then uh you know and i hate to again just overly think about this but how much uh you know maybe we're getting to a point to where we were before then you know at, at this initial moment uh, you know scholars you know categorize these periods you know of, of borderlands type of you know multi ethnic interaction where things are kind of up for grabs so to speak uh, but just if if our site if we're maybe getting back to uh, so and it's not a nostalgia that I'm trying to point out here but just a, a point where again the the languages that are using the cultures that are using, we just become much more comfortable right um, with the variety and, and the diversity that is around us and I know that's very local you know local and regional even within our own nation but if somehow
0: well I think that's a huge it's a huge point in the politics of language in general that I do bring up in the book and I talked about it a little bit with California and New Mexico but it um, language, rights are regional and are state-based and locally based right so if you don't have something that um that actually that restricts the lang- use of language then cities and towns and counties can have their own Laws that allow for translations, or you know, Miami is a, a key example of this in terms of you know the bilingualism that is there, right? So you can have that in specific regions, and it can be very locally based. And until the United States, like at this point, they're one of only eight nations in the entire world that does not have an official language, right? And so, and because of that, and because of you know federalism in general, and and not having to do with the federal government does with language at the more local or state level, it does allow for, for everyone's experience to be very different. You know, we might be talking to somebody who is in North Dakota who says, oh, no, I don't really see the language at all, right? But, um, and so it, it, um, it can be very, the official language use can get, um, it can be very much segmented into those different places. So individuals' realities is very much dependent on where they live um, then and today.
1: Right. You know, and that's something you bring out earlier on the book that kind of brings us in the role that federalism has played, right? In um you know, that is the, the the multilingual, you know, nature, I guess, of, you know, of our country, as well as its multicultural, uh, you know, type of you know diversity. And that as it expanded, right, the concept of federalism being the, you know, constitutional kind of guiding point of how territories are incorporated, getting to, you know, make decisions on their own, if you will. Uh, and that type of relationships and debate between the federal and states and territories uh, is what allowed this kind of, you know, in ways which is ad hoc and at times, you know, sort of arbitrary type of progression, right, to where uh, I think, as you're right, various regions in this country, people just presume that, again, right, English has always been, you know, the language of the nation, the U.S. nation, and, uh, or even of that, that territory, at least within you know, expansive memory since maybe even Native American periods, but in indigenous periods. But uh, you know, when you look to other regions, particularly this, you know, particularly California, the Southwest. You know, Spanish not only predated, of course, uh, English as a European language that was being used in the region, but um, you know, one that uh, you know has continued, you know, throughout. All right. Well, thanks so much for for your comments on that. Uh, I do want to give you one, you know, a, a moment to also share with us what you're working on now. Uh, not not to get yeah, us so. Yeah, so I'm, I'm board, working but, on my so, second book project, yeah. which I'm tentatively calling Intertwined on. Roots correct? right
0: now. Um, and a lot of your last comment actually kind of segues well into it. And that's the fact that, you know, Spanish, while it is an American language, in, and it's an American language in multiple different ways, right, as in a language of the Americas, right? Um, American is not just for the United States, but also as a language of this nation and, you know, um, central to its, its creation. Um, but also, um, it's not the first language that was here, of course, it is a European language, it came in later, and there were indigenous languages. And there was a long relationship between uh, Spanish speakers and indigenous populations that continues through this entire period that we've been t- discussing. And so I'm, I'm looking at another kind of long term, um, like 100 year study of the relationship between uh, Mexican Americans and Native Americans, Indigenous individuals who are mostly in Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado at this point is where I'm pinpointing. I am still figuring out um, sources and and which particular, like if I want to focus on on the Pueblo or if I want to focus on Navajo or if I, you know, which, which particular groups that I want to look at in relation to Mexican Americans. But I've located um, m- multiple different Archives that I'm using to do, to do this sort of project, and so I'm excited for it, and it's been it's been fun to kind of read broadly again in a in a new field.
1: Great, great. Well, I'm excited for that. That sounds very fascinating. But you've given us plenty to think about.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. I'm a longtime listener, big fan. <laughs>